Hello and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by the Humanitarian AI Meetup.com groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, New York City, London, Tokyo, Toronto and Zurich. Today we're going to speak with a very special guest joining us from Washington, D.C. Welcome, Laura Walker-McDonald. You're the Senior Director of Insights and Impact at Digital Impact Alliance, or DIAL that's hosted by United Nations Foundation. Thanks so much for joining us. It's great to have you. How Thank are you? you? Uh, all right. Oh, Hold up at home like everybody else. Yeah, must be quite the place at the moment and quite relevant time to speak about what we're going to dive into. But first, we'd love to hear about your journey and you know what it is you actually do you've got such a vast background so where should we begin i'll leave that to you okay well it's been a strange journey for sure and yeah i started off training to be a lawyer and then realized that that wasn't going to be very fun and so i went to do and did a, did a master's degree in human rights law and development and then actually ended up my first job was with the british red cross in london doing humanitarian policy work with them and learned a ton but right as i was sort of starting to think about the next thing, the Haiti earthquake happened. And, you know, every emergency, the big the big emergencies, there's some innovation that really is sort of the hallmark of it or, or really takes a big step forward in that emergency. And I think Haiti was the, the, the cell phone one, the mobile phone one. And so we were looking at how to use mobile phones to allow people to register for food aid and in-kind and aid. And I started sort of researching this area and came across Frontline SMS, which at the time was a desktop application that helped you send, receive and manage text messages. And you could plug in a phone or a modem to a laptop and away you'd go. And all you needed to communicate with people was a, an, a cell phone signal. So it was used a lot in low resource settings where you know, mobile was the only thing that worked. And I ended up staying there actually in one form or another for eight years and eventually was sort of co-running that with my now husband. And then we we actually spun out Frontline as its own independent company. And it's still 100% coded in Kenya and now online and in the cloud and still merrily sending messages. And then we developed from that a nonprofit foundation called SimLab that was a sort of a consultancy was helping people think about how to use really accessible tech like phones, like like cell phones, to reach people and do things for any social change purpose, really, but mostly usually development. That was really interesting and challenged me on a technical level to come up with guidance that would help people to do a good job with that stuff, thinking about how to look at a program or a project context and think, well, so what's the technology that's really going to work here? And how do we help these particular group of people to do something, whether it's send and receive health information or get information in a crisis about what they should do or check supply levels, things like that. And so so I was working on that for a long time, but began to feel a bit frustrated that the international development space and the humanitarian space weren't changing fast enough. So I sort of naively thought, well, if you give everybody an explainer, then they'll all say, oh, great, thanks, and then change their practice overnight. Sadly, not true. So you're at Dial now, and we'd love to hear more about, you know, what is Dial and what's the mission and how did you get involved? 
So SimLab sadly closed at the end of 2018, and I was very fortunate to almost immediately move to work for two organizations, um, the Global Alliance for Humanitarian Innovation, and then DIAL, the Digital Impact Alliance, where I've been for just over a year, that are looking at really systems-level innovation and systems-level change that helps to make digital more part of the toolbox every day, or innovation more part of the toolbox. With Guy, the question was, why is it that innovation is not scaling effectively in humanitarian aid? And that's something that the Humanitarian Innovation Fund thinks about also, which we'll get on to later. And then at, at Dial, really, the question is, how can we help digital be part of development work so that every government who is trying to provide services for vulnerable people can access and choose and use effectively digital tools that are fit for purpose and scalable and sustainable to do their jobs and reach people with the services that they need. And in both cases, it's really more systems level change. So thinking, talking to leaders and funders and, and trying to shift those big policy flows. So it's almost full circle back to policy work, really. So Dial is a multi-stakeholder partnership, which is just a fancy way of saying that a bunch of donors got together with the UN Foundation, where we're hosted, and felt that you know digital development was was in a phase where it really needed someone to take a step back and think about some of the do some experiments, think about what some of the challenges were, try some things to solve them, and then and then replicate those solutions where they worked. And so Diffid, who um, have come on recently as a funder, but have been in the conversation since the beginning, Swedish Cedar and the Gates Foundation funded us and we're hosted at the UN Foundation. And we work to, to really sort of think about things, try things, and then replicate the solutions that work. And our, our, we've focused mostly um, historically on those sort of experiments and learning. Um, and we're now moving into a new phase where we are doing more of that influencing us at the global level. And that's really one of the things that I've come in to help do. And also, I get to work a lot on our responsible data practices within um, within Dial. But we have a lot going on. Um, we actually are the stewards of the digital principles, the principles for digital development. And we also host the Open Source Center, which helps producers of open source software to tackle some of the challenges that they have in getting to scale and sustainability we do a lot of work on using mobile data for development and looking at how uh, digital is for development is financed and funded. And that's just a, a quick, you know, a few things of the things that we've done. You mentioned the scaling. Do you want to talk about that process? I think scaling innovation and scaling digital is a systemic issue. There have been lots of attempts to tackle it. And I would say that the organizations that I've been fortunate enough to work with have been really leading on some of this stuff. And so Gahi, for example, um, published some papers that suggested that we've gone from innovating with, you know, one-off challenges to get you to build something, innovation 1.0, to trying to scale things. And ELRA and the Humanitarian Innovation Fund ran a whole scaling program where they funded, um, I think, three innovations and run, put them through gave them a lot of support and mentoring to help them scale and make their solutions sustainable. And that might be innovation 2.0, but, but suggested that actually, if you were going to build a humanitarian ecosystem from scratch that really innovated, you'd need learning loops, you'd need lots sort of funding that was flexible enough to cope when businesses needed different things at different times. You'd need, you know, essentially more access to capital than comes from most innovation and digital funding. 
and I, I really rec- I really recommend that paper, which is by Dan McClure. And Dan's also been involved with the Humanitarian Innovation Fund, and they have a significant amount of sort of papers and guidance out there about their scaling initiative. And they just published actually a review, I think in the last, I'm saying actually just, but I think probably in the last year have published a review of that program that shares some of the lessons that they've learned from it. And then at Dial, we really think that getting to scale is about, when you really boil it down, it's about having the products that are scalable and sustainable and actually fit for purpose and having those products have business models that work behind them having procurers and and governments who know how to choose and use technology and have the funding and the ability to to do cross-sector cross-government procurement which as anyone at the government digital service in the uk or the a similar organization here in the us would tell you is, is pretty hard but not impossible and you have to have individual capacity to do that effectively and you have to have policy and regulation that supports it so it's really when you get you get right down to it, i guess it's really about that fragment sort of addressing fragmentation of funding and effort so that we're doing things in a more streamlined way to to focus more funding and more support and energy on a fewer number of innovations and platforms that might might then grow to scale Wow. So what's been challenging? What's been something you've needed to overcome? It sounds like, you know, lots of moving parts and a lot of coordination and collaboration. Anything you can share in that process and how you got um, buy-in? What comes to mind here is is just working with um, the for-profit or business world and then the humanitarian NGO world. are those two coming together in a more seamless way or how can how can the two help each other better mm. yeah i think i think we are seeing more effort going into the private sector bridging the private sector and this sort of public or you know it's a kind of combination of the governments international ngos international organizations and and national organizations civil society organizations and sort of foreign donors and, and donor organizations who want to see something in particular happen and how that you know sort of quite closed ecosystem um, effectively interacts with the private sector is an interesting one and I think it's also important to unpack who you mean here so we did a study in 2018 that tried that talked to technology service providers mobile network operators, where we actually ended up excluding that group um, because they had been covered by a previous study, government representatives from host countries, donors, and then NGO folks. And when you look at that, it's an interest, that's sort of the main actors in the digital ecosystem, but it, it doesn't break down the technology service providers because I think that there is a different conversation to be had with the big, big tech um, folks like like Amazon, whose AWS cloud hosting is powering so much of what digital development is doing, whether people realize that or not. Or with smaller groups like Souptel, for example, who provide um, technology solutions in certain regions um, for things like um, job creation and messaging. Those are quite targeted at the development sector, quite regionally focused, come from a social enterprise background and need to be talked to quite differently. And then there are people who maybe are producing software solutions that might be commercial off the shelf software that could be picked up and used by governments, but maybe they're not targeting those markets or or those use cases. And they have 
a solution that could be fantastic, but it's maybe proprietary, maybe it's data um, interoperability isn't great. And so how can you take a step back and rather than going from a sort of place of a value judgment, say that open source is, is I mean, open source is a wonderful public good, but there is also value in commercial off-the-shelf software. And the fact is that it's a valid choice for governments to make if they're trying to get the job done. So how can you have a discussion with private sector representatives to say, look, we'd really love to be able to use your software in all these markets for these big scale implementations. Here is what we need you to build so that that works. Um, and maybe sort of set some standards and, and talk about things that way. Dial is working on some of that stuff. Thank you. So right now we're facing two very big issues. Uh, one, one's probably a social justice issue with the Black Lives Matter, and mm -hmm. the other is COVID-19, and, and then a whole lot of probably the SDGs are already addressing the, um, the climate crisis. Uh, so much disruption on so many levels uh, that, that are just um, quite new. You mentioned Haiti in the very big start of our, our chat. Right now, how, how are you framing? Are you doing anything at Dial? What can help us be better and help, you know, each individual listening to this podcast? You know, what, what can each one of us do to just um, help? Absolutely. So I think that there are a number of things, really. So Dial is working on a number of COVID-19 related things that really are just extensions of what we were doing before. I think that, well, when we look back, I mean, our CEO, Kate, said to me a few weeks ago, I just don't think anyone's going to be questioning the role of digital after this. Um, so it has been, you know, it's forced us to do a lot more virtually. It's forced us to leverage digital solutions to to be able to do anything without, you know, to to, to provide people with a way to do their work, to access services, to get groceries and the countries where those things are less possible are the places that will be hardest hit by the needs for social distancing, number one. So, so I think it really has accelerated at least the acceptance that we need to invest in digital infrastructure for all countries and that connectivity should be part of a minimum standard for everybody um, in the world at this point. So for us, that means that we can we can take that as a starting point and, and keep moving. We are also helping governments to respond. So many of our partners provide, um, I mentioned mobile data for development, many of our partners provide analytical support and technical support to governments as they're trying to leverage private sector data to help them make public policy decisions about resources and predict possible peaks and hotspots for a COVID infection. Uh, not doing contact tracing using apps, but rather looking at population dynamics, how people move based on trends that they're seeing in cell phone data. Um, and doing that safely and responsibly without producing any risks down the line for, for particularly marginalized groups is, is a tricky one. I think the other thing that I'd say is that we, you know, we are all under immense pressure to do something. This is like a, this is a, this is one of the largest, I mean, certainly in living memory that the world has has faced. Um, and the pressure to do something, to be shown to be doing something is huge. And I think also digital sometimes is reached for an innovation as an answer to the fact, the truth that you recognize that we, we're never going to be able to do enough. We're not ever going to reach everybody who needs help. And so what moonshot innovation are you investing in that might help you get there? 
as we're accepting those realities, it's really important that we don't let go of our principles and values and the the good practice that we know is critical to to have good outcomes. Um, and I think colleagues around across the sector are reinforcing that view that principles like the principles for digital development, concepts like responsible data are more important now than ever. And so we are continuing to think and talk about those standards and how we can embody them in our work, even under massive pressure. I think one other way that people could help is if you are a coder and you are interested in volunteering on an open source project that might have relevance to the COVID-19 response, then you can look at the Open Source Center website um, that that Dial runs and that will lead you to a range of our partners and many of them are always looking for support. And I know that there are other initiatives around data processing and, and mapping that are equally, you know, sort of seeking volunteer support at this time. I think you're going to have a lot of takers who, you know, want to see things that don't just stop at a hackathon, but actually see the light of day and actually make it to something. So Dial sounds like a great home for um, a lot of a lot of our friends out there. Please, please help. Thank you. So innovation in this time and your um, we were chatting earlier about the Humanitarian Innovation Fund. Would you like to just expand on what that is and um, what you might need there? Yes, absolutely. So the Humanitarian Innovation Fund, I've been involved with in one way or another for um, since its inception in 2011. I was on I think at the time I was a board member for its parent organization, ELRA. Um, and for the last few years, I've been on the funding committee, but we are all stepping down and they are currently hiring new funding committee members. And the reason for that is that um, they have just undergone a big pivot and overhaul and they would like to start afresh with a new funding committee that is more diverse, gender balanced um, and drawn from around the world. And that funding committee application is open until the 21st of June 2020. So if you're listening, you still have time to get your application in. And to tell you a bit more about the Humanitarian Innovation Fund itself, it was set up by a group of donors um, to provide an independent grant-making program for the whole humanitarian community. So at the outset, it ran open calls for innovation and humanitarian aid, um, and it was building on ideas from ALNAP and others about what the innovation cycle is, and so always was very thoughtful about saying it might be a very early stage idea, in which case here's a pretty easy application to do to get a small amount of money to just get you started you might be scaling an innovation or you might be diffusing an innovation. You might be telling people about it so that you can get the word out. They funded over 200 innovations so far. Um, and they also ran a whole scaling program, as I mentioned, that took applicants who had had that larger scale funding and still and then needed to take it to the next level um, and supported them with workshops and guidance um, and funding to do that. And it's innovation. It's not just digital. So it's not, it has been, while there is, have, have been investments in technology um, and in AI, a lot of the innovations haven't been quite what you'd think. So 
one innovation that we funded um, during my time was the Better Body Bags um, initiative, which I think was a partnership with ICRC to do what it says on the tin and improve body bags for for mass emergencies. Another example would, would be, which is more in the theme of this podcast, is the humanitarian exchange language, which is now hosted by OCHA and provides really useful framework for, um, for the humanitarian community. And one of the initiatives that we funded to scale was actually a program which is, um, I think, a joint program with the Pansy Foundation, which provides music therapy for vulnerable communities who've been through traumatic experiences. So these are not technology innovations, they are process innovations or they're new methodologies that we want to try that might help people in humanitarian crisis. It's been a fascinating journey. That's very timely and how can people help out? Where would uh, be a good place for them to connect with Humanitarian Innovation Fund? Is there a website or how, how would they reach out? If you go to the ELRA, um, that's E-L-R-H-A.org website and look under careers, you'll see that there's an advert there for the HIF funding committee member. They're particularly looking for people who have had experience of managing or working in humanitarian response, ideally reasonably senior, but really interested in people with a background in humanitarian ethics, in community participation and accountability. Experience in the private sector is very useful and um, humanitarian policy as well as practice. So actually that adoption, that system level stuff. And if people have experience of actually receiving humanitarian aid and being affected by a crisis, or if people um, are living with disabilities, I think they're particularly encouraging applications from those groups. And that deadline again is the 21st of June, 2020. That's great. Thank you so much. And I know we're probably running out of time and you're, you're working from home. You have a three-year-old as well. It's That's just right. what a time. What a it's time. an ongoing humanitarian crisis in my house, I can assure you. <laughs> Gosh. Um, so, so, Laura, from your point of view, where do you think humanitarian AI is headed and maybe open data sharing? Can you talk around those two areas? That'd be great. So I... I mean, I, as I said, I come from a kind of low tech background and partly that's because most people still don't have access to this technology. Some, most people don't even have a footprint in that technology, although that's changing. But there are still at least a billion people on the planet that don't have a phone at all. And or I think maybe more than that, maybe three billion. And there are only one or two billion smartphone owners. So you have to be really realistic about who's being left behind. And if you are working on this stuff and you are trying to reach the most vulnerable, then you really don't want to do that with an app. So I've always come at it from this sort of, mm, but what is this really going to do? And I think there are two kinds of people in this space. And there are people who are really enthusiastic and excited about this. And then there are people who are thinking, I'm not sure how this is going to work, actually. And I have to tell you, I'm afraid I'm in the second group. Awkward to tell you this now, but <laughs> given the name of your podcast. But I think that I think you can't go far wrong if you get the principles right, is what I think. And there are immensely useful things that AI can do. So, for example, health data, we're now on you know our second or a second or third serious sort of pandemic or you know health issue of international concern in 10 years and we don't to my knowledge have an international standard for how health data is shared and so 
you know, especially for, you know, countries sort of Europe or, or landlocked countries in Africa who need to do data sharing because borders are porous, they really can't do that in a way that makes it easy to put it all in one place and look at it. And that is a problem. So solving those with data standards, um, but also having the, the computing power to make sense of that information. And then I think critically having that actionable information reach decision makers and actually be used you know, that could be really transformative. And there's no question. Another example is supply chain information and logistics. Humanitarian organizations, including WFP, for example, have hired private sector companies to help them use AI for those purposes. And I think that that could be very useful, lead to efficiencies. And at the end of the day, that helps more people get the help that they need. But we have to think about the why here, and we have to think about the risks as well as the benefits. And if and weigh those carefully, um, that's one of Dial's own responsible data values is carefully weighing and transparently weighing risks and benefits. And I think we don't always do a good enough job of that. And those risks are sometimes poorly defined. Not everybody has visibility on all of them. There's very poor community consultation and certainly feedback to communities. Sometimes communities don't even know that their data is being used in this way. If you are thinking about you know, using AI in in this kind of work and you are not doing a full risk assessment and you're not thinking about how this is going to impact marginalized people even you know there was the wfp contract that i mentioned actually generated some reputational risk for the wfp because of the partner that the private sector partner they chose palantir who has a certain reputation how does that impact humanitarian space we're just starting to grapple with what some of this stuff means um, and i think that that means we need to think carefully, weigh benefits and risks, but also share our learning, share what happens, really go back and try to understand the intended and unintended impacts of our work. And that's just such a critical element of this um, and something I really hope that we can all work on in the years to come. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing all your insights with us today and lots and lots of takeaways. Any last things you'd like to add before we we close i'm good i think i covered all my talking points please no more hackathon <laughs> well thank you so much for your time today <laughs> laura and um sharing your insights as i said earlier that brings this edition of humanitarian ai today to a close